The message today is entitled, Conduct Worthy of the Gospel. Conduct Worthy of the Gospel. So we're going to be looking at specifically chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Lord, we ask right now that you would come and that, oh, Holy Spirit, you, you've, you are the teacher. And anybody who seeks to teach your word, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit, to teach through us, to give clarity to the word of God, make it clear and simple and concise. Would you do that today, Lord? And would you give a ready and willing heart in the people that hear this message, either right here in this room, or Lord, over Facebook, or on the internet at some future time, may you give them ears to receive your gospel truth. And transform us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, let's read starting in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you, or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now up until this point in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul has been largely autobiographical and very personal. Paul has been sharing with them that he prays for them constantly. And that every time he remembers them, he thanks God for them. He's told them that he has them in his heart and that he longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to share his own perspectives about three very serious subjects. Suffering, living, and dying. Paul's perspective on suffering was that he rejoiced in it because he could see that God was using it for the progress of the gospel. So he rejoiced in suffering. In living, his perspective was that life should be lived to exalt Jesus Christ and to serve his church. And then his perspective on dying was that dying was gain. And that when a person died, it was just to depart and to be with Christ. So having shared all of that, we come to verse 27 and Paul now begins to exhort the Philippians. He shared about his own life, his own perspectives, his love for them, his prayer for them. Now he's going to begin to exhort them. And what he's exhorting them to do is to live out their Christian lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's really important for us to see that Paul is not just urging them to live out their Christian lives as isolated individuals. He's urging them to live out their lives in community. In fact, as you read through this section, you're going to get a communal flavor that permeates through this whole passage. At the end of verse 27, he says, with one mind striving together. Not alone. You are to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. And he also says in the earlier part of verse 27 that we are to do this in one spirit with one mind. In other words, we're to do it in unity. Well, you can't do something in unity if you're isolated all off by yourself. He's talking about the church coming together 
to advance the cause of Jesus Christ and his gospel in the world. So here's the question. How do the Philippians live lives worthy of the gospel and how do they do it together? And we could ask ourselves the same question. How do the people of the bridge live lives worthy of the gospel and how do we do it together? That's the question that we need to be asking the text and we need to see how Paul answers that. Now, don't miss this little word at the beginning of verse 27. You see it? My Bible says only. Is that what your Bible says? You guys aren't looking at your Bibles. <laughs> well, it does say it. It says only conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. What does he mean by only? Well, I believe what he means when he says only is he means something like above all. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. Or only one thing concerns me. Live your life worthy of the gospel. Or the most important thing is that you would live your life worthy of the gospel. Or something like above all else, live your lives worthy of the gospel. So in other words, what Paul is about to say is of crucial importance for the church. This isn't a sub subsidiary uh, message or truth that he's going to bring out. This is of the heart and soul of the Christian life. It's extremely important. And that little word only tells us that. The next thing I want you to notice is the word gospel here in verse 27. He mentions it twice. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he ends by saying, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So whatever else Paul has to teach us in these verses, it relates to and is surrounded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, the gospel's never far from Paul's mind. You can see that as you just go through the book of Philippians. And you notice how many times he, he references it. Like back in chapter 1 verse 5, he says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Or verse 7, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Or verse 12, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Or verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So over and over and over, Paul's talking about the gospel. It's never far from his thinking. In fact, it's the center point of all Paul's world is Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. So let's just take note of that. The gospel is the good news concerning the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's the good news about the saving work of Jesus Christ. It includes the historical facts of his death, burial, and resurrection. It includes the truth of his substitutionary atoning work to pay for our sin and to grant us everlasting life. It's, if you took this Bible you know, if, <laughs> we used to joke about you could take a loaf of white Wonder Bread and you could boil it down to about a piece this big. Well, if you take this Bible and boil it down to its irreducible minimum, you have the gospel. It is the centerpiece uh, of, of everything else of this Bible. And the gospel's glorious. That's why he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The gospel is so glorious and is of such inestimable value that we need to seek to live lives that are worthy of it because it is so precious and valuable. 
Now, there's also another phrase in verse 27 we need to take note of. It's conduct yourselves. Only conduct yourselves. Now, the original meaning doesn't come out in our English translations, at least most English translations. At least it doesn't in this one. Conduct yourselves. The original Greek word here means conduct yourselves as citizens. That's what the original Greek word means. Conduct yourselves as citizens. Which gives a certain spin on this particular word. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. And the people of Philippi knew what it meant to conduct themselves as citizens. Because they were all Roman citizens. Philippi was called the miniature Rome. If you went to Rome and then went to Philippi, at Philippi you're going to see basically the same thing you're going to see in Rome. The people are going to dress with Roman dress. They're going to use Roman language. They're going to embrace Roman customs. Uh, they're going to use Roman titles. So it's like transplanting Rome to this little city off in, in the east called Philippi. And what the Romans... What the Philippians did there in Rome was they refused to allow any infiltration of local influence. They closed themselves off from the way the rest of the world around them dressed and spoke and used titles and all their customs. And they, they were almost fanatical about their loyalty to Rome. And they became a miniature Rome right there as a colony. And so when Paul wrote that they should conduct themselves as citizens, they knew all about conducting themselves as Roman citizens because that's what they did all the time. But Paul wasn't talking about conduct yourselves as a Roman citizen. Paul was talking about conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven. And we know that because two chapters over in Philippians 3 verse 20, Paul tells them, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul says conduct yourselves as citizens, worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's talking about conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. So just as Philippi took all of the things that were germane to Rome and transplanted them there to that little colony, that little city called Philippi, so we are to take all of the things germane to heaven and transplant them into our daily lives so that people when they see us, they see representatives of heaven. That we, we have the language of heaven, we have the dress of heaven, we embrace the customs of heaven. That when people look at us, they, they, they smell heaven upon us in all of our actions. Whatever we end up doing, they, there's the odor, the aroma of heaven that fills God's people. So, only conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the big question here is, how do we do that? How do we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel? And how do we do it as a community? That's a lot different than just saying, okay, go off by yourself and conduct yourself as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. How do we do it as a church? Well, Paul tells us. He says you do it by standing together, striving together, and suffering together. That's what he tells us in this passage. First of all, by standing together. He says in verse 27, Whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind. One spirit, one mind. So this impl implies that there is a spiritual unity within the church. 
and that you're standing firm in this spiritual unity. Now let's think through this phrase standing firm. Standing firm. It gives the picture of an army that's on the defensive. An army that does not want to lose any ground. They don't want to back up, they don't want to turn around and run so that the enemy comes in and takes control of the ground that they've already won. They're standing firm, they're not going to budge, they're not going backwards, they're standing together. Picture a Roman army standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, with their shields out in front of them, and they are committed that they're not going to lose an inch of the ground that they've conquered. They're staying put, they're not running. It's, the phrase was used of a soldier who defended his position no matter what. At the peril of his life, he was going to stand his ground. What flashes through my mind when I think about standing firm is the movie Gettysburg. I don't know if you've got any Civil War buffs here, but that was an awesome movie, Gettysburg. And there's a scene in that movie where the North are up on Little Round Top. It was a ridge. And the Confederates were trying to take the ridge. They were trying to go up the side of this hill to take that ridge. And they knew if they got the ridge, they could sweep down that ridge. And it's very possible that they could have routed the Northern Army. And if that were to happen, today we would have two nations, not one. We'd have North United States and South United States or something like that. So here was a situation. You've got Joshua Chamberlain who is the, the leader of the north up on that ridge, little round top, and you've got the, the Confederates moving up, trying to take the ridge. And the north stood their ground. They stood firm. Even though it was fierce fire, they didn't back down, they didn't withdraw. But there was a problem. The north eventually ran out of ammunition. There was no more bullets. So what are they going to do? They've got really two options. They can turn around and run, and try to come to, a, to get more ammunition from their, their fellow soldiers and then make a stand. But they, didn't, they decided not to do that. They didn't want to retreat. And so what they ended up doing is they fixed bayonets on the end of their rifles and they started running down the hill. No bullets, just bayonets, running at the enemy, stabbing them. And the, the Confederates, when they saw this, got spooked and shocked and they took off and ran the other way. And they were able to hold their ground. So that's a good picture of standing firm. They stood firm. We need to refuse to give ground to the enemy of our souls. Amen. We need to stand firm and we need to do it together. Linking arms with each other. When you get weak and you feel like I just can't stand firm anymore, someone next to you is going to have the strength to hold on to you. That's why it's important we do this together. That's one of the, the great reasons why you need to be involved in a local church because we need each other for this Christian life. How, how in the world are we going to be victorious in our Christian life on our way to heaven without the support of other believers that are going to be there for us? And he says, do this in one spirit with one mind. In other words, we stand firm in unity. We don't allow ourselves to be pulled in 17 different directions, every person doing what's right in their own mind. Notice the first two chapters of the next, I'm sorry, the first two verses of the next chapter. Philippians 2 verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, 
if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, we'll just stop there for a minute. He says, if there is. Now, was Paul supposing that these things that he just mentioned were in doubt? Like there might be encouragement in Christ and there might not. There might be some consolation and love and there might not. No, he doesn't mean that. You could paraphrase this by using the word since instead of if. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort that comes from love, since there is fellowship that we share in the Spirit, since there is affection between the brothers and compassion for one another, because of all that, make my joy complete. What will be the result when we take advantage of these five great spiritual resources that we have in Christ? Encouragement, consolation, fellowship, affection, and compassion within the community of the church, when we really take advantage and display those resources that we have in Christ, the result is verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, the unity that he describes in verse 27 is elaborated on and unpacked here in chapter 2 verse 2. Same mind, we had that back in 127. Um, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. He talks about standing firm in one spirit in 127. And then notice how he ends chapter 2 verse 2. Intent on one purpose. I believe to be of the same mind and to be of the same spirit means that you are intent on the same purpose. One purpose. If we here at the bridge are of the same mind and are of the same spirit, we're going to have the same purpose. Well, what's the purpose? What's the one purpose that all of us are supposed to be striving towards? I would suggest to you that the one purpose is found in 127. That it is striving together for what? The faith of the gospel. That's what the purpose is. So the bottom line is that the church needs to stand together, to stand firm. And folks, Satan is having a heyday in our generation here in the United States of America. He's having a heyday. He's probably laughing at how easily he has duped the masses with this new sexual morality where in a single generation at lightning speed, he's been able to totally change everyone's thinking on what is right and wrong. But we need to stand firm together as a church against the advances of Satan. So, when the world tells us that the joining of two men together is marriage, but God says no, Marriage is the joining together of a man and a woman, a commitment that they make in covenant for lifetime. We have to tell the truth. We need to tell people, no, I'm sorry, I don't believe that two men together or two women together constitutes a marriage. God does not constitute that a marriage. And my first loyalty is to God, not to this present world. So no, I don't believe that is, is the case. Or... 
when a person decides they're just going to change their gender. If they're a girl and now they're going to become a boy. They're going to start dressing like a boy or a boy decides he's going to become a girl. He starts putting on dresses, wearing makeup, uh, curling his hair. Um, he may even go so far as to have a sex reassignment surgery to try to make his body look like a girl. That to me, we, we have to say God made us male and female. God knew what he was doing when he created you. He didn't make a mistake and make you the wrong gender. We are rebelling against God's creation mandate when we try to change the very identity that he gave you. So we need to stand firm against the, the, the pull and the tug of the world that's trying to get everybody on their agenda to believe the way they do. Or what about just something as simple as two people having sex together before they're marriage, before they're married. I was shocked. I read this statistic yesterday. Uh, one study said that among adults ages 18 to 44, 59% have lived with an unmarried partner at some point in their lives. And only 50% have ever been married. Meaning that more people today are living with each other than getting married. Now that just blows my mind. But that's the state of our current generation. More people have sex outside of marriage than they do inside of marriage. That's the current lightning speed descent of our current moral, moral generation. And when we say these kinds of things to the world that no, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that this is right. I don't believe that that's right. I believe that this is right because that's what God says. You're going to be threatened. You're going to be intimidated. At least the world is going to try to intimidate you to fall into line. To fall into lockstep with them. It'll do everything it can to make us withdraw from the truth and to get us to shut up. John the Baptist, if he had just shut up and kept quiet about Herod having his brother's wife, he wouldn't have got his head knocked off. But John was a man of courage and boldness and he stood up for the truth and it ended up taking his life. What about Jesus? Did, was Jesus quiet when he went to the religious leaders and he saw all the hypocrisy amongst the Jewish religious leaders? He rebuked them again and again and he told them the truth about their hypocrisy. It cost Jesus his life. And God is calling the church to be bold and to be courageous and to speak truth. Not to fall lockstep in with the world repeating their deluded lies. We are to tell the truth of God to whoever will listen to us. And one reason we need to do that is because if someone's going to be saved, they're going to have to repent of sin. And most of the sins they're committing are the ones that have been accepted by almost everybody. They need to be told that's not acceptable with God. If you're going to become a Christian, you're going to have to turn from these particular sins and you're going to have to come to Jesus Christ for cleansing and for eternal life. If we say nothing and just a, pretend as though these things aren't going on, I don't believe we're being faithful to God or His truth. So we need to stand firm together. That's how we conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. Number two, we need to strive together. Strive together. Standing firm reminds us of soldiers in battle, but striving together reminds us of athletes 
in a fierce competition because the Greek word for striving together is soon athleo. Soon athleo. Athleo is the Greek word from which we get the word athlete or athletics. So it's an athletic competition. The prefix soon, S-U-N, means with or together. So this means to compete in this athletic competition together. It's to strive with every fiber of your being to win whatever the competition happens to be and you do it together. So think the 11 men on the field in the Super Bowl seeking to advance the ball through the goal line so they can win that game. So think that or think the runners in a relay race who are working together to win the race or the eight rowers on the boat striving together towards the finish line. Think of the church as being a team and there's a game to be played and a game to be won and we're working with in fierce competition together to, to win that goal. In standing firm you see soldiers in a defensive position refusing to give ground but in striving together we see athletes in an offensive position seeking to gain ground and to win that competition. Now, what is it that we're striving together for? The faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. Now, it's not entirely clear exactly what Paul meant by that phrase. He could have meant strive together to get people to have faith in the gospel. And that would be true. We are to do that. But he also may have meant striving together for the faith which is the gospel. And there's a slightly different nuance to each way you look at it. If it's the latter one, he means by the faith, the Christian faith, the Christian religion, the body of truth that is connected to Christianity. In other words, the faith could be a synonym for the gospel. And Paul does use the phrase the faith sometimes that way in the Bible. For example, Galatians 1.23, he says, but only they kept hearing he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. What do they mean? The Christian faith. The body of doctrine of Christianity. Basically the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. Or Jude verse 3. Contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So sometimes the faith, the faith is an objective faith, not our subjective trust in something, but the faith, the Christian faith. So if that's what Paul means, and I, I tend to lean in that direction, then he's saying that we need to strive together as a church for the faith, which is the gospel. That we need to strive for the gospel. What does he mean by that? I believe he means that we are to strive to proclaim the gospel, to defend the gospel and to confirm the gospel. To proclaim, confirm and defend the gospel. And that would tell us that the reason, at least one of the reasons the church exists is for the gospel. That's why we're here. God has us here in this world on behalf of his gospel to proclaim it, to defend it and to confirm it. And so our purpose, our mission here at the bridge is to strive to defend, confirm, and proclaim the gospel so that all people will hear it and God's elect will believe it and be saved by it. And I don't want you to miss, miss this. Paul is calling the whole church 
to do its part to strive for the faith of the gospel. He isn't saying you evangelists out there, you need to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Or you overseers and deacons, you guys need to be striving together. No, he's writing to the whole church. And he's saying all of you, you need to be striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, you can't exempt yourself from this exhortation and say, well, that's, I'll leave that to somebody else because they've got the gift of evangelism. I don't. No. It's your responsibility as a child of God to do something to advance the gospel while you're living on this earth. So the whole church is called to do it. But the thing we also need to understand is that this does not mean uniformity in the way we advance the gospel. In other words, if someone loves street preaching and feels God's, God has called them to do street preaching, it doesn't mean that every other Christian has to advance the gospel through street preaching. There are many different ways that we can make advances in the gospel. One person might intentionally develop friendships with their neighbors or their co-workers, take them to lunch and then share the most important thing in their life with them. Hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian. This is the most important thing to me. God saved me 22 years ago, or whatever you want to tell them. But, but you see what I'm saying is through relationships and developing friendships, that's another way to advance the gospel. Somebody else may knock on doors in their neighborhood and hand out gospel tracts and ask if they need prayer about anything. And if there's an opportunity, share why they're doing this because God has saved them through the, the work of Jesus Christ. Someone else may go on social media, or Facebook, Instagram, somewhere, Twitter, and they may post messages related to a, the gospel. There's many, many different ways that we can advance the gospel. So just because one person is zealous about this particular way doesn't mean that you have to do that particular means. We just need to get that out. Okay, so what are you doing to advance the gospel? How are you striving together for the faith, which is the gospel? Think about that for just a minute. What are you doing in your daily life? If you can't think of anything, then it's time to change that. It's time to take stock. Today, this morning, start asking the Lord, throw up a prayer right now, even as I'm talking. Lord, show me what you want me to do to advance the gospel. Because it's sinful for us to do nothing at all. We ought not do nothing at all and pretend like God is pleased with our lives. That's one of the reasons he's left us here until we get to heaven. So I want to call you to get involved together to advance the gospel here in the Sacramento area to do something. And that's why I was mentioning before the sermon today that I'll be reaching out and asking who's willing, who's interested, who, who would like to get together and to try to do something to see the, the beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ go forth. But then thirdly, how do we live lives worthy of the gospel? By suffering together. And that comes out in verses 28 to 30. He says, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now, look at the three words that tell us what this, what this paragraph is about. Verse 28, he talks about opponents. Verse 29, he mentions the word suffer for Christ's sake. Verse 30, 
he talks about conflict. Opponents suffer and conflict. This tells us that the normal Christian life when we are striving together for the faith of the gospel is going to have this negative fallout and that is the world's not going to like what we're doing. We're going to have pushback by the world. People, some will be offended by it. Some will hate the truth that you're communicating. I just had a, a flashback to, to a time when I was pastoring a church in the Bay Area and we had put these we had paid hundreds of dollars to put an ad in the local newspaper. And I had written out a gospel message and we put it in the newspaper. And it wasn't your Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life kind of gospel message. It was truthful. We talked about sin. We talked about judgment. We talked about hell. We talked about the cross. We talked about forgiveness and eternal life. And I got this really angry voicemail on the church phone one day. This guy was so mad and angry that I had put that message in the newspaper. Well, that's to be expected, isn't it? Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. If we marvel about it, we shouldn't. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be shocked. The world hated Jesus. It crucified him. If you are faithful to your Lord, you're going to find some opponents. You're going to find suffering. You're going to find conflict. In fact, in verse um, 28, he says, in no way alarmed that Greek word for alarmed was used as a startled horse reared in fright. So picture a horse startled and rearing up. Most translations, instead of using the word alarmed, use the word frightened. In no way frightened by your opponents. Our opponents could easily frighten us by their threats or their intimidations. But Paul says we should not be alarmed, we should not be frightened by them. And he goes on to say, when we are not alarmed by our opponents, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. So, hear this. Your fearless commitment to the gospel, even when you're being opposed, is a sign. It's a sign. And that sign says something, just like a stop sign communicates something. When you are fearless in the face of persecution, you yourself have become a sign to the world and the sign says something. The sign says that I'm saved and that you who are opposing the message that I'm bringing are lost and will be destroyed. Because that's what he says in verse 28. It's a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you. So when there is this fearless commitment to the gospel in spite of your opponents and the conflict and the suffering you face, God is holding up a sign. The sign says, this person over here, they're saved. And you who are opposing this message, which is true, you're going to be destroyed. And he says here, and that too from God. Both this fearlessness comes from God and the salvation comes from God. We don't originate either one. God gives us this fearless commitment to the gospel and God gives us salvation. And notice that this, when God is building this sign, He does it by giving two different gifts. He wants people to see a sign, but in order to hold up this sign to the world, He has to give two gifts. The first gift is faith, the second gift is suffering. 
that comes out for you in verse 29. For to you it has been granted. That word means given. Here's your gift. And this gift is for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, faith, but also to suffer for His sake. Two gifts, faith and suffering. Now why would God give those two gifts in order to hold up this sign that says these people are saved and these people will be destroyed? Well, think about it this way. In order to create a big sign of fearlessness, you have to be something that you're afraid of, first of all. So there's got to be suffering. So God gives the gift of suffering so that there's something for you to be afraid of. But then he gives you faith so that you're not afraid of it. You overcome that fear and you pr you're not alarmed by your opponents because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives the gift of suffering which gives the potential for fear and then he gives faith so that you overcome that fear and you present yourself as fearless in the face of your persecutors. And then he says in verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In other words, don't think that you're going through this alone. I'm going through it too. I've been going through it, Paul could have said, for a long, long time. I'm experiencing it even now. I'm chained to a Roman soldier as I'm writing this letter to you. But I'm not afraid. God has given me the gift of suffering and I'm experiencing that suffering even now but he's also given me the gift of faith and with that gift of faith I'm bearing a bold testimony to the preciousness of Jesus Christ that comes out for us in verse 20 according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death now Paul knew that he could lose his life for his testimony to Jesus Christ. He eventually did. Not at this particular time, but it was, it was possible that he could have. But he also knew that if he was killed for the cause of Christ, that he was going to depart and to be with Christ, which was very much better. So what do you do for a guy like that? How do you, how do you I mean, there's nothing you can do to, to, to win a guy who's not afraid of persecution and he's not afraid of death because death means his coronation that he's going to be ushered into the very presence of Jesus Christ there's nothing you can do to hold a guy like that down they're unstoppable and Paul is referring to his experience to give encouragement to them to follow in his steps you guys don't be afraid don't be alarmed of your opponents I'm facing the same thing but God has given me the gift of suffering and of faith to overcome my fear okay let's draw this down to a conclusion what does that mean for all of us here at the bridge in 2021 let's think of those three exhortations stand together the gospel is so glorious that we should unite around it we should stand firm united as a church and so let's make a firm resolve this morning that we are not going to capitulate to the changing morals of the world. The Word of God stands forever. It doesn't change from one generation to the next. Something that was right three, four thousand years ago is still right today. Something that was wrong three, four thousand years ago is still 
wrong today. We are not safe if we listen to the world and start basing our beliefs and our opinions on what the world tells us because the world goes up and it goes down and it changes from one generation to the next. And right now it's changing at lightning speed. It's frightening to see how fast things have changed. You just go back 20 years and we lived in a different world 20 years ago. Our standard for truth is not the changing morals of this present world. It's the unchanging bedrock of truth that we find in the Holy Scriptures. So we've got to be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And come what may, this is what we believe. Because this is what God has said. And so we need to declare what God says is beautiful and praiseworthy and lovely and honorable. And we need to shrink from declaring what God declares is hateful and ugly and abominable and to be shunned. We need a moral backbone of steel. We're going to need that if we are going to be faithful to the Lord in the days in which we live. We're going to need a moral backbone of steel. And if we can learn anything from history, we learn that over time, mainline denominations have slowly but surely downgraded they started off so faithful to the Lord, so full of evangelistic zeal, so, so committed to the scriptures. But over the years, 100 years, 200 years, you find them declining to where they, they barely even resemble where they started at. I'm thinking of denominations like the Methodists, the Lutherans, some branches of the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopalians. Started off great as a new move of God and slowly but surely Satan has worked and you look at them now and you wonder can that even be the same denomination that started off many of them deny essential truth like the virgin birth of Jesus Christ or the miracles of Jesus or his bodily resurrection or the atoning work of Jesus Christ in the cross um, many of them deny that the Bible is fully inspired and is the Word of God. And it's not just what they believe, but also what they allow, the kind of lifestyle that is permitted. Many of them now ordain women to the pastorate, and they ordain gays to the pastorate. And they don't blink while they do it, even though the Bible forbids that kind of thing. So we need to stand firm together. We also need to strive together. The gospel is so glorious that we should strive to advance it. Are we doing it? Are we striving to advance it? What is the primary mission that God has given to his church? I don't think it's really that hard to figure this out because if you go to the last chapter of Matthew, the last chapter of Mark, the last chapter of Luke, the last chapter of John, and the first chapter of Acts, you're going to see Jesus telling us what the mission of the church is and it's pretty clear Matthew 28 19 go and make disciples of all the nations teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you Mark 16 15 go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation Luke 24 47 preach repentance for forgiveness of sins it will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations John 20 verse 23 if you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven if you retain the sins of any they have been retained 
Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, before Jesus ascended to heaven, he left certain words ringing in his disciples' ears. And he said it over and over and over in different ways. And basically, he's telling them, I'm leaving you here and you've got a job to do. You're to be my witnesses. You're to preach repentance. You're to preach the gospel. You're to make disciples. And he says it over and over and over. So, it is to our peril if we ignore that because we don't like to do what Jesus told us to do and just hope that the Lord will tell us well done good and faithful servant in spite of the fact that we've ignored his commands. So the primary mission of the church has to do with the gospel. Confirming the gospel with holy lives, making the gospel beautiful by the way you live, defending the gospel through apologetics which means giving, giving reasons for the hope that lies within you giving rational, reasoned answers for the gospel, showing people that the gospel is rooted in historical fact. It's not some fable or fairy tale or legend. It has to do with historical fact. And then proclaiming the gospel by telling people what it is, giving out gospel literature, giving out tracts. So let's strive together. And thirdly, suffer together. The gospel is so glorious that we should be willing to suffer for it. When we're standing firm together against the lies and deceptions of the world, and when we are striving together to advance the gospel, there's no doubt that you're going to face opponents, you're going to face conflict. And in our day and age, you're going to face it from people who are very wealthy and who have a lot of power. And it could come to the point where, well, I'm sure it will come to the point where those who are faithful to God are going to be persecuted because we will not compromise with lies, with delusions. The question is, will we be willing to suffer together for Christ's sake when that time comes? Will we be faithful to speak the truth and suffer whatever persecution comes, not being alarmed by our opponents? I want to call on all of us this morning to make a resolve that come what may, we will suffer rather than bow down to the gods of this world. Our God is a jealous God. He will not permit us to worship the idols that the world proposes. So what I take away from our passage today is that God is calling us to stand together, to strive together, and to suffer together. And to do it together, supporting each other in all three of those things. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to need your help to be faithful. We feel it in our bones, Lord. But you are faithful. And you will give us what we need in the moment that we need it. We pray that you would build a moral backbone of steel within each of your children, Lord. 
a resolve that we will not compromise, give up truth for falsehood, and that we will tell the people of this world the truth, that they might be saved. We pray that you'd help us in this ward. May we not shirk. May your spirit in us rise up within us and give us a fearless commitment to Christ and his gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.